DJ Leroy. Night Watchman. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you? You know, another week. Another week has gone by, but you know what? Uh, I still have the same job working for the state. What do you know? Okay. All right. Well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for that because, yeah. uh, you know, I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, this is going to be a nice, as I say, popping show, man. I'm I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, we, we basically, of course, we have a, a veteran, right? Mm -hmm. He's been on Soul Lounge uh, primetime before. And this was actually in the midst, in the heat of, of course, COVID. Mm -hmm. so we were talking about the serious rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. Now, it's not to say that, you know, uh, Asians have been treated A-OK -okay all the time, but there was a precipitous spike in really violence perpetrated against Asian Americans. And so mm -hmm. Jan Lee, who came on, uh, you know, uh, along with some other guests, we, we really, really dug deep. Jan, my brother, how you doing, man? I'm well, I'm well. Thank you. Thank you to you both for having me on. Absolutely. And you know what, Night Watchman, I'm definitely going to have to be biting on his shirt. I, I, need, I need my shirt. <laughs> yeah, that's shirt. Okay. shirt. Yeah, he's got, he's, got the, he's got the cool hoodie on today. Yes. All right. Well, the, the good news is I designed it so I can get it for you. Oh, <laughs> great. Great. Okay. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, we might have to do, uh, do, do a, a shirt exchange. Yeah. That that sounds right. like a, that's yeah. right. I can get him the Harlem American one. Ah, mm -hmm. okay. Oh, yeah, so it's so a deal. There, it's a deal. There will Jan. There will be an exchange of gifts. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yes. And it is right. the gift giving season coming up. So uh, uh, I owe you. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, needless to say, you know, uh, Jan, he's keeping it kind of like low key or whatnot. But you know, he's a star, uh, Night Watchman, a star in a documentary <laughs> that he mm -hmm. turned me on to. Uh, mm -hmm. But more importantly, you know what? He turned me on to a woman who's, he says, man, Kurt, you got to check her out. It's going to be incredible. And you know what? I like her already because she she has my wife's name too. And that, of course, is Miss Karen Cho. Yeah. Hey. Karen, welcome to Soul Lounge Primetime. <laughs> Thank you for welcoming me. I, I, I think in the past two years, no one has said they like the name Karen. So, so thank you very much. <laughs> oh. Okay, just so you know, Karen, my wife does get on me when I like go to like YouTube and start playing some of those Karen videos. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, how, uh, how our name has become an adjective now. No, yes. we're we're here for the rehabilitation of the Karen name. That's it. That's <laughs> it. So please, big fight in Little Chinatown. Please, 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 give me the genesis. Give me the background. Go ahead, Karen. Uh, well, I mean, Big Fight in Little Chinatown, it's, it's a documentary film that kind of really looks at, I guess you could say, the resistance and resilience of the Chinese uh, community or in the Chinatown community, um, you know, in the face of all these kind of pressures. And, and a lot, it looks at different Chinatowns across North America that are mm -hmm. facing, you know, gentrification pressures, urban renewal projects and kind of active erasure. Um, but the film kind of also tries to celebrate the agency of the community in, in defending themselves and protecting their neighborhoods. Mm. Well, I, and Karen, how did you come across Jan? <laughs> well, it was really funny because the the story of um, how the film w was made, I mean, I about 20 years ago, I, I did a film called In the Shadow of Gold Mountain up in Canada. And it was about the Chinese Head Tax and Exclusion Act, which was a mm. kind of... 62 year period of legislated racism against the Chinese uh, in Canada. And that film aired or it, it, it premiered in Chinatowns all across the country. So I, I had deep relationships and I also have deep family roots in several of the Chinatowns up in Canada. So, you know, fast forward, you know, almost 20 years later, I was seeing so many of these Chinatowns kind of entering into these periods of neglect or active erasure and, and I really wanted to explore um, you know what we risk losing if, if we lose these very important um, historic places but also these living communities. So I was in New York City in, in March of 2020 mm. and it was at a, um, a coast to coast gathering of Chinatowns against displacement. There was a, you know it was an opportunity for me research wise <clears throat> to meet a bunch of, of different Chinatowns. Um, all at the same time and meet some people on the ground in New York. But of course, when I went home uh, back up to Montreal, 
Um, three days later, they shut down New York uh, because of COVID, you know, mm-hmm. and so the rest of the world. So Jan, actually, I met virtually first because I, yeah. I couldn't cross the border. It was, it was illegal. This is before vaccines happened. Um, and I was actively following the story of the the jail that was going up in New York City because to mm. me it was just this uh, present day story that kind of harkened back you know to so much of these kind of urban renewal projects that expropriated so many Chinatowns in, in the past without community consultation um, and it was an actual unfolding present day story so I was you know actively looking online, trying to find coverage of this. Uh, I, I came across an episode of your show where you'd interviewed Jan as well. And mm. so I kind of reached out to him on, on Facebook mm. and, and, and we started talking over Zoom. So that's really, I, I met Jan virtually first and we were kind of corresponding for nine months. And I had a remote shooter, a, a cinematographer who was based in Brooklyn. Um, so who could go down and, and interview uh, Jan. So the very first interviews that were done with Jan um, for the film, I was actually not present. I was just only there kind of on a cell phone and I had had a, you know, like a kind of Zoom meeting with, with my uh, cinematographer beforehand. Wow, wow. And Jan, my man. So, yeah. so you, now you know about Chinatowns and the experiences that are happening to them, uh, it seems like worldwide. Because I had no idea. We're talking about uh, Toronto. We're talking about uh, Vancouver. We're talking about uh, Montreal. So each of those major cities has a Chinatown. Uh, they do. And, they and, and go ahead. Well, no, I I actually learned about what's happening in those Chinatowns uh, <clears throat> because of Karen's film. And you know, when we're here in Chinatown in New York, we're very much in our little silo. You know, we we have our issues that we're trying to resolve. And I think that what Karen's film does so successfully is it shines a light on the issues that Chinatowns in North America are facing simultaneously, but also historically. And one of the things that was so powerful about me meeting Karen was that similar to my family, she has very, very deep roots in Montreal Chinatown. And that really helped. It helped me to open up very uh, candidly because I I knew that I wasn't speaking to someone who I would have to start from square one. This was a woman and her family who understood um, exclusion quite literally. You know, Mm. uh, her family endured through um, owning businesses and working through the Chinese Exclusion Act in Canada, which ran simultaneous to the United States Chinese Exclusion Act. And so that was um, that was our starting point. You know, we are very similar. And um, through her film, I learned that, you know, we are certainly not alone. Um, and, and there's many, many similarities throughout all the Chinatowns that we felt to the point where after watching the film, you realize, you know, there's a point where you almost don't re- recognize which Chinatown the film is taking you to because it doesn't matter anymore. Um, the, the universal language for all of us and the universal fight seems to be so parallel that the film does a very good job, I think, of, of showing you that. Absolutely. And, and one of the things, I guess, also, Jan, you are a third generation, right? And, and unlike a number of folks who have businesses, uh, your business is that you guys actually own the real estate. Because a lot of times you find that yeah. you know you go in there, you're just a business, you do not own it, and so you're at the whims of the landlord who might at any point decide to do something different. That's a very good point. But although my family has also been uh, own owners of small businesses throughout the last hundred years, you know, myself included, I had a store on Mott Street for 18 years, and so I have a unique perspective from being a tenant and also being a uh, a property owner. Um, you know, it was in the 20s that my family was able to purchase property <clears throat> at the height of a lot of racism against the Asian American community. Um, you know, there was there was uh, anti-Asian sentiment even back then, and that's why Chinatowns occur. You know, they they were corralled into an area that was undesirable, and the Chinatowns that we see today were essentially built up through networks of social services that were provided by the Chinese themselves, not with government assistance. 
you know what, Jan? It's almost interesting how, let's say, here in, uh, let's say, uh, America with black folk, right? Our corralling is what we, we call what the ghetto, so to speak, uh, aka taken from the the Jewish uh, the Jewish uh, uh, situation as well. And so I I do notice that in one and I believe Karen, it was in the documentary mentioned that when they were talking to one of these uh, French bureaucrats, his whole thing was that you know tourists. They don't want to really see no, no Chinatown. They don't want it, that atmosphere. They want to see new, vibrant. They want to see the quote unquote real Canada, which means the non-Asian Canada. Yeah, no, or, the, or the white Canada. Yeah. So, but that that kind of thing. I mean, it's it's kind of shocking, I guess, today to see that on you know, like the guy is giving, uh, you know, it's at a press conference where they're unveiling this government building they're about to drop onto our Chinatown. It took out one third of our Chinatown. Mm -hmm. It took out two churches and um, a, a food factory that employed a lot of folks in our Chinatown. So after that, the Chinatown started emptying because we didn't have the kind of community gathering spaces. Mm. Um, and and uh, other infrastructure projects uh, in Montreal also took out most of the residential buildings. Like I, I'm fifth generation Chinese Canadian and every building that my family lived in or worked from in the Chinatown was was demolished during that period of urban renewal. Incredible. Incredible. Um, but it just, you know, to me, it was seeing that pattern happen again and again in, in all Chinatowns, but also realizing that, you know, in, in Chinatown in, in some ways is the last ethnic enclave neighborhood to survive into the present. And, mm -hmm. and, and it's often a stand in for these other communities that were completely wiped off the city map. You, you know, the, the film talks about how freeways dissected Chinatowns and, it, and mm -hmm. the freeway almost goes through every single Chinatown in every city. But so often the freeway itself like was the black community mm -hmm. and, and, and mm -hmm. just gone. You, you know, in, in Montreal, we have a um, neighborhood called Little Burgundy, mm -hmm. um, like the heart of the jazz scene. Oscar Peterson is, is from there. So, wow. uh, and, and the, you know, they drove up the highway through that neighborhood and on the way to driving it through Chinatown as well. And in Vancouver, um, Hogan's Alley, which was also uh, a, a neighborhood where the porters lived. It was right close to the, the um, this train station when they 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 managed to stop the freeway there but not before they did this kind of um uh interchange overpass and and that whole thing demolished hogan's alley completely so mm. you see this kind of um yeah the, it's like really the intersection between racism and urban planning and i wanted to kind of bring that to the fore because uh, you, you know it's shocking to see it in the past but then you see echoes of that in the present and, and especially with the the New York, the jail story, uh, mm -hmm. where those jails are being put, what communities are receiving those jails. So, you know, like I really wanted to kind of draw this parallel between the past and the present. And, and uh, Karen, you know that of course here in uh, the States and uh, New York, and, and certainly Jan, you know this, we got Robert Moses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who who do you identify or groups that you identify as being those type of let's say, don't listen to the minority community. Just hey, go in there, bulldoze, make that bad boy new. Tell tell me some of your examples. Well, there was you know um, it, it goes even further back than him. You know, Chinatown has had different levels of sort of people wanting to decimate the neighborhood for the mm -hmm. sake of tourism, for the sake of a better. Uh, atmosphere of uh, putting the best face forward, but that means oftentimes erasing the cultural aspect of what's here. You know, um, the the fact that the Mulberry Bend was considered the worst, uh, almost inhabitable place in the entire island of Manhattan, and that's where Chinatown was, wow. um, is no is no accident. You know, there were people who just didn't want to sell to the Chinese because. Uh, there was a very strong sense after the railroads were finished that we needed to get rid of this labor force because they were a competition to white labor. Mm. And in fact, you'll see this even on clothing labels of the time where um, there were clothing clothing labels that said white made. And that was to mm. distinguish um, uh, people who would have been in the labor force uh, that they wanted to make sure were not a part of this garment. And so uh, this type of racism, I think, manifested itself on where people were forced to live 
Um, back then, there were open sewers. The streets were not paved. Uh, my father was born in the building in 1921 to a midwife. Um, wow. You know, middle class families and uh, lower class families did not go to hospitals. They were born to a midwife who would come to the building. And my dad, in 1921, when he was growing up in the Great Depression uh, later in his life, said that the, the open sewers, there were still horse and carriages in uh, Little Italy and Chinatown. Um, and it was it was a rough life. It was a very rough life. But at the time, Chinatown was integrated very much with Italians and Jews. Mm-hmm, and so those mm-hmm. groups actually grew up together in very close proximity. And the cultures were very, very unique in this part of the city. Um, and, and, and I think that there's a lot of the shared values between those three groups that um, kept them very much together. Um, mm-hmm. But the municipality is what we're talking about. The municipalities um, are the ones that made these decisions about what to do with the Chinese. Wow, wow. And you know what? Uh, One thing that really, and you said it, uh, Jan, and it comes through in the film, uh, Karen, is really family, that connection. Because I'm thinking about uh, William William Liu, uh, who, okay, remember, the family has the business, uh, dim sum. However, the key thing... I, the dude is an opera singer, a, a classically trained opera singer, you know, and, and 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 the dude has skills with his baritone, you know, uh, but yet because of what's happening to the family, he makes that decision that, hey, I got to be there for the fam. I got to make sure that they, uh, you know, uh, are A-OK, especially being that with his father going through, of course, uh, kidney failure. Uh, and I'm also thinking that a beautiful little uh, uh, moment between father and son when the father just tells him, yo, bottom line, hey, if you think you're experiencing some stuff now, and, and we certainly see the, let's say, some of the, uh, I guess, the uh, opioid and other addictions and the thing, but really the key thing, white racism. And I said, whoa, whoa. And so he identified that, knows that, you know, over overarching, and sometimes black folk suffer and have that self-hatred uh, mentality themselves, but they don't realize the overarching thing is racism that must be confronted at all costs. Yeah, and no, I mean, for me, it was so important to include that uh, comment of William's father because in so many Chinatowns, and, and it's very pronounced in Vancouver's Chinatown because Vancouver's Chinatown is part of the downtown east side, which is one mm. of the most marginalized uh, communities in all of North America. There's lots of issues with drug addiction, mental health, mm. houselessness. Wow. And but it's it's also part of the Chinatown neighborhood. And what was so interesting about that uh, that family business is they had this model of of affordable food for the people mm. of the neighborhood. They were really a community serving um, business because mm-hmm. they recognized that the people around them are their customers, not the tourists, not the rich people that are just going to come in, you know, to have dinner because they they could easily raise their prices. They could move out to the suburbs. William's little dim sum, uh, you know, place, they make frozen dim sum, but they mm-hmm. actually export all of their, um, their product to all of the, the fanciest hotels and all throughout Vancouver, mm-hmm. all, all of the grocery change mm-hmm. uh, chains. It's actually those little kind of grannies in the back kitchen of the Chinatown place making that dim sum. So their wow. family could easily have chosen to leave Chinatown, upscale mm-hmm. their manufacturing and become kind of like, you know, like the, the kings of the dim sum empire. <laughs> but, but instead they decide to set down their roots even deeper into Chinatown, knowing how important their business is to um, the stability uh, of the neighborhood. Uh, William told me a story, and this, this didn't make it into the film, but a very poignant story of there's a woman named Maria who, who's a customer there. Uh, she, she's someone who has uh, been dealing with, you know, a drug dependency issues, and a lot of instability in her life. And, and she came up to William one day uh, and said, please, like, I don't leave. Like, like, like we need you also. And then this is not necessarily the Chinese community, her community. She says, you know, you're an anchor for us too, because for me, you are the only stable part of my life. Wow. And it's because William, the food they serve, it's it's like $5 for lunch, right? And, and in a neighborhood where there's a lot of handouts, where there's a lot of people standing in lines, mm-hmm. um, it, it's the dignity of being able to afford something to for yourself mm-hmm. and in the neighborhood where you live uh, that makes you feel that you can belong somewhere. So it was 
you know, it's that family's philosophy that that I that to me exudes the values of Chinatown. Chinatown was a place of sanctuary for so many of us during those, you know, awful racism years mm-hmm. of exclusion. Mm-hmm. It was the only place we could exist in the city, the only place we could be safe. And it was a place where we looked out for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and William's family is kind of extrapolating that to the larger uh you know marginalized uh, community base uh, around them and and arguably especially out of covid they were mm-hmm. one of the biggest business success stories in vancouver's chinatowns and, and their model was not you know you know fancy new food for fancy new people it was affordable food for the people that already exist in the neighborhood the chinatown seniors uh the, the marginalized groups that are very low income and that mm-hmm. was a business model that can work in a place like chinatown Incredible, incredible. And uh, a night watchman and me watching the film, I don't want to say I was like Pavlov's dog. I was getting hungry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. Go ahead, night watchman. What you well, well, I wanted to ask uh, Jan just kind of a follow up because the last time you were on the show, you know, we were talking about the issues of of, of government encroachment in, in, in the neighborhood. And you were telling us about an issue at the time um, where they were looking to try to, I guess, build another prison facility in the area. Oh, yeah. so I wanted you to um, maybe just follow up on that and let us know what's happened since then. Well, I, I think that Karen came into my life and came into the lives of Chinatown people at a very pivotal time. And uh, she really worked to amplify the message uh, of this fight, literally fight in Chinatown against the building of a mega jail. And mm. it's really important to set the stage. Um, we talk about displacement, but we first have to acknowledge, of course, the first displacement that occurred in this country, which was displacement of native people and and so the and particularly on that site there it was a displacement of of native people um because it's built upon a pond a a freshwater pond that used to be there and Mm. so we see displacement happening through the history of the united states but right here on the island of manhattan with the displacement of of black communities like seneca village and which is how yes. they built Central Park. You know, this yeah. was an yeah. affluent, thriving, uh, beautiful community that was displaced by eminent domain. And so the Chinese are just one link in a history of municipal displacement when when they have found that we're people of color who are just an annoyance in the way. Mm. And so the irony here is that we're not a community that's saying no to jails. In fact, we've lived with jails in this site since 1838. And then every time that they have built a jail at that location, they've torn another one down and built a bigger one and tore one down and built a bigger one. So this, if they're successful, will be the fifth manifestation of jails at this location that our community has had to live amidst. And so it's, it's, you know, it's very easy to point to us and say, well, you look different than me and the people in the jails look different than you. So you must be against those people in the jails and that there's nothing that could be more further from the truth. What we're talking about here is a community that has a very unique perspective about incarceration and how the buildings of larger incarceration institutions just doesn't work. And uh, we have seen this repeated over and over again. And so what we're saying to the city is, you know, the de Blasio administration came up with this idea to build a jail 350 feet tall. It is several blocks large and it's tearing down two existing jails. Mm-hmm. One of which is only 30 something. One, one of the jails is only 30 something years old. So what we're saying is we have to take a fresh look at this. We have a new administration. We have an mm-hmm. opportunity to say, let's reuse what's there. Let's do something called adaptive reuse, which will uh, solve yes. the problems of you know tearing buildings down putting them into landfills transporting Ooh. all of that debris across city lines and dumping it somewhere why aren't we just looking at the existing buildings and completely changing them to be adaptive to today's standards make them humane make them quickly and really solve these issues that are rife um, in the largest carceral uh, footprint, which is Rikers Island, 
matched only by the second largest carceral footprint, which is Chinatown, because we have three jails here. So it's wow. a very, um, it's a difficult situation, but we feel strongly that we can help the city accept the jail at the location where it is. You know, this is not new to us, mm-hmm. but really take a hard look at adaptive reuse and really do these things quickly and, and safely because, you know, to do the job that they want to do, they've got to dig a pit to hold mm-hmm. 125 private use cars. That's a very, very large foundation. And, wow. you know, I'll remind you, it's on a swamp. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's a danger here to lose key buildings, key businesses that are over 100 years old. There's a senior residence that's on the campus of the jail. Those folks, unfortunately, are not going to be removed. They're going to have to endure living through a demolition and a construction. And what we're saying is let's shorten that time substantially mm-hmm. and really do this in a much more safe uh, environment. And, you know, 2,000 people came out to the rally that we organized nice. uh, to, to show the government that we'll, we'll continue to come out. Myself mm-hmm. and nine other folks got arrested, and you'll see that in the film as well. Because yeah, we yeah. really are putting our bodies in front of those bulldozers, and we'll do it again. I, I saw that. I saw that in a, the film where you guys went re- into the middle of the road, and uh, the police, of course, said, yeah, "This is a legal uh, formation. They're in the road. You must ro- uh, move." So, t- so tell me this now. Certainly, we do know that every new administration doesn't necessarily honor some of the agreements from the previous administration. So, Jan, do tell me, in terms of uh, the Adams administration, are they still moving ahead with what they're proposing with the Blasio's plans? Right now, the jail um, has a fence built around it. They have started uh, taking some of the materials from the inside of the building out. Uh, and we know that there is a, a demolition permit that's pending. So things are moving along. But, mm. you know, let's face it, we're looking at a mayor who has a lot of different situation on his plate than when this entire concept was formed in 2018. Now mm-hmm. think about what's happened to the city since 2018. We've gone through a major global pandemic. Yep. People have lost their jobs. We're looking at just on a very basic level, a budget that is not the same as it was in 2018. Mm-hmm. We're looking at um, uh, just material shortage. We're looking at um, transferring goods from one part of the country to another has become a very difficult thing. And so why aren't we looking at shortening that time, doing it in, doing doing it so that we have a humane building that can function in a beautiful way and not go back to making large buildings that are just these monuments to incarceration. Mm. We're looking at, uh, at the same time taking some of that money that's saved and really investing it back into communities because we feel strongly that we need to have a people first approach to this yes you could build any building you want but if you don't improve the neighborhoods from which these folks end up uh in jail Mm -hmm. we're gonna have that pipeline right that we speak of often and uh we don't feel that this expenditure is really being done in the right place so concurrent to having a smaller jail on in this particular footprint, reusing what's there, we also have to make robust investments in education and mental health counseling and all of those things that really keep people out of jail to begin with, including, um, you know, jobs and, and, and things that can get people on the right track. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that kind of like struck me, uh, certainly with the uh, film, Karen, was the fact that, man, the Chinese Exclusion Act, I mean, we're talking about just men. I mean, God. So so definitely trying to form, let's say, a, a connection, a camaraderie, family. But it, it must have been a lonely existence. Yeah, no, and I mean, that also is why places like Chinatown are so important, right? Like a lot of these men who were the bachelor men, they weren't allowed to reunite with their families or their wives. Yeah. You know, Chinatown literally became like their cho- chosen family, right? Like, and, wow. the, and those those family associations uh, were formed because of that. And that's why the film tries to get up into those family associations that continue to exist into the present because they were, you know, the first kind of mutual aid societies for these mm-hmm. people who mm-hmm. are really alone in, in a very kind of hostile environment, mm-hmm. um, you know, to allow them to kind of... Um, have a foothold in a place and, and kind of support each other. And, you know, also going back to 
you know, Jan's presence in, in the film, like something I realized very early on, and it was actually Mei Lum, um, uh, who's fr uh, from Wing on Woe in the film, yep, yep. who kind of told me this in a research interview, talking about uh, small landlords in Chinatown and, and how, because a lot of the family associations, they mm -hmm. own their buildings and their community-owned buildings. But, uh, but the small landlords in Chinatown that kind of have the values of, of you know, looking out for, for the community and helping the people also help to keep the Chinatown in lock. And, you know, in, in the film, you see Jan talking with, with the hot key restaurant, who is, you know, the, the commercial kind of tenant at, at the bottom of the building yeah. um, and, and trusting them because they have this intergenerational relationship together uh, between their families, you know, trusting them, even though uh, this restaurant during COVID, of course, had trouble to pay the rent, you know, like, like they, yeah. it was devastating what happened in, in for so many businesses, but particularly Chinatown that was stigmatized. It's really these kind of smaller landlords and, and the family associations that have the kind of on, you know, a human um, relationship with their tenants mm -hmm. that are able to kind of work out deals or, or figure out ways to, to help people not have to get displaced. And the same in, in Montreal's Chinatown, there was a restaurant, you know, about to leave and go to the suburbs and set up shop there. And it was the Chan Family Association in our Chinatown that that gave them a, a huge uh, break on, on their uh, lease renewal. Mm -hmm. Because the friends knew that, that if that restaurant left, it would be an empty space in, mm. in the Chinatown. Um, and, and they weren't willing to kind of, you know, they're thinking larger than just their bottom pocket. It, it, it's for it's for the community, the good of the community. Mm. And so I think, um, you know, this model of smaller uh, land ownership really does help protect the neighborhood, you know, mm. versus these large. And now it's not even just large landlords. It's literally capital investment firms like those Atlas Capital in New wow. York and L.A.'s uh, Chinatown. We have a, 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 a place called or Atlas, uh, sorry, Hill Park Capital in mm -hmm. Montreal that bought up the Wings Noodles building and the most historic block in our Chinatown. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like these faceless, uh, you know, real estate investors in a way that are literally using Chinatown as a kind of empty piggy bank where they, they leave wow. the, the shells of the building there because it, they're mm -hmm. just cashing in on the land of the neighborhood. And, and, this, and meanwhile, with all this real estate speculation that the the community itself empties out and goes into this you know like uh there's like blocks swaths of of land in my chinatown where it's just abandoned buildings and wow. it's people holding on to those lots speculating on them incredible incredible and there's a there's a um there's a thing that the cities can do which I think, uh, you know, a solution to this would be a recognition of legacy businesses and the relationship with legacy landlords. And I think that that is something, you know, Karen mentions the fact that the family association had to step in to save this uh, vital business. But why is that the case? Why are we looking at um, a case where the mayor of New York steps in and he during COVID and he says, I want to save Astor haircutters because um, he got his haircut there. You know, why isn't he doing that for everyone in New York who is contextual to their neighborhood, go deep into Harlem and find out what is the businesses that have been there for a long time and who is the landlord and what is the relationship? The landlord should be getting some kind of a compensation for renewing leases over a long period of time. You know, both parties have paid taxes, let's not forget, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And into the system. And yet when it comes to this, um, uh, life-changing experience, whether it's Hurricane Sandy or 9-11 or, or global pandemic, we need to preserve these businesses in particularly ethnic communities because they are the fabric that hold these communities together. And let's not forget, these businesses are oftentimes the first employment that immigrants have. Yeah. They, they, they are coming into neighborhoods where they feel safe, where they can get a job. And for generations, very often, this is the way that immigrants find their way into into America. And so why are we relying on our own neighborhood associations, which are also potentially ephemeral because they're also paying taxes, right? Mm. With the, the cities raising taxes in 10 years, our taxes have doubled. And so I'm talking about recognizing family associations to be tax free because they do provide not only um, support for business 
and translation services, but they are essentially, any, and if you go to any Chinatown family association, there's an altar in the back. These are religious institutions to mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. These are mm -hmm. where we go uh, to pay respects to ancestors, for instance, the Lee Association or the Wang Association or the Chin Association. Mm -hmm. We go in there and these are places of worship because we believe in ancestral worship. So yes. why are they paying so much taxes? Why are these institutions um, potentially lost? If we lose our family institutions in these Chinatowns across North America, what do we have left? There's literally no more marker of an existence. And then, wow. and then it's much easier. So look, the city needs to recognize legacy landlords, legacy businesses, and, and cultural institutions within these communities as they've done in the film successfully. Otherwise, we're gonna lose not only Chinatown, we're gonna lose Spanish Harlem, we're gonna lose little Bangladesh, we're gonna lose Harlem. We'll lose these communities to become the suburban mall that you hate. And the, the problem is there's always someone who wants to come to New York City and recognize that everything has turned into a suburban mall because that's their comfort level. Mm. And part of the reason people come to New York City is to feel uncomfortable, is to experience something new, is to experience one neighborhood that's different from another. If we homogenize the entire island, it's not only boring, it's very expensive, and we've ripped out the soul of this, of this city. And I think Karen's film really points to one group, which is the Chinese, but mm. we're seeing this all over the city. It's, it, there's mm -hmm. no, I think that there's no mistaking that the two extreme ends of the island of Manhattan, Harlem and Chinatown, are being sacrificed for the luxury of the middle. And let's mm -hmm. face it, if we if we eliminate black ownership from Harlem and Chinese ownership from Chinatown, who's going to take over those places? It's not small families who are uh, black and Chinese. These are going to be corporate faceless uh, entities, as Karen said, that can just sit on this property and wait us out. And, and and for the first time in many years, Harlem ownership is certainly shrinking, and Chinatown ownership is sh slowly shrinking. And and this administration has an opportunity here to recognize uh, ways that they can help, and that that's one of the ways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one one of the things, um, uh, Karen, that came through in the uh, film was the fact that I, I believe one of the uh, experts uh, said that in terms of the lifespan of a Chinatown. You have less establishment, uh, you have then growth, we have thriving, and then of course, uh, a demise, right? So now I, I would submit, and Jan, help me out on this particular one. Now, let's say, would you say that, let's say flushing is in the, is in the midst of thriving uh, and, and, and may not necessarily have some of the same pressures that you experience in Manhattan Chinatown? Well, there's a physical um, difference just in the land use, right? You can expand uh, horizontally in, in, in Queens and in Brooklyn a lot easier than you can on the island of Manhattan in this very mm -hmm. confined space, right? We're, we're bordered by um, you know, Tribeca and we're bordered by the, the points north and we're bordered by the financial district and, and we're sort of hemmed in to this very expensive areas around us. Whereas, um, you know, at the time when Flushing was expanding, it was um, sort of a community that was on its way out where the Chinese were able to take over and really expand horizontally. But also that was a different group of Chinese who moved into Queens and Brooklyn. Um, mm. As Chinatown was starting, to, you know, these are in the years after 9-11, there was a, a period of uh, uncertainty. And so uh, even driving into Chinatown was difficult in the immediate time after that. And so these Chinatowns outside took in a lot of the employees that would have mm. been here in Chinatown. And so those neighborhoods really flourished. We felt a, a severe competition going on between Flushing, Brooklyn, and New York City Chinatown. And that still wow. persists to this day. And wow. so I think that any of these forces that work against New York City's Manhattan Chinatown will benefit those other Chinatowns. And so mm. there's, there's definitely a competition that goes on. You know, Chinatown today used to, I would say the last call for meals is like 8.30, 9 o'clock. You've got to put your order in in the kitchen. And to New Yorkers, that's an incredibly shocking reality. 
Yeah. And that has a lot to do with the fact that the Chinatown restaurants can't keep their staff as late as they used to because they just don't feel safe going into the subway and buses to go home. Wow. Uh, and, and, wow. and so we yeah, we we have a we have certainly a workforce uh, deficit here in Chinatown. Mm, mm, incredible. And and one of the things I guess uh Karen uh that uh, Jan points out in terms of let's say the feeling of uh, insecurity, not feeling safe. Uh, we certainly do know that here in uh, NYC. Tell me about uh, experience in Canada. Well, I mean, in Canada, it's similar to what happened in the States. Uh, actually, per capita, it was much worse in, in, mm. in Canada. The wow. I think the incidence of racism against Asian uh, Canadians in, in Vancouver like increased 700% in, in, in COVID. There's, there's statistics like that. Um, every single Chinatown gate, like all of our Chinatowns in Canada essentially have a gate. They mm -hmm. were all vandalized uh, during wow. COVID. And Vancouver's gate was vandalized to such an extent that the community kept taping, you know, flowers around the food dogs. They're, they're these two kind of, you know, looking like line things that guard mm -hmm. the gates. Um, and they kept getting continuously vandalized that the community would come back and like uh, put flowers and, and think like to unvandalize them in a way and to show that they were cared for but no it was felt very hard uh, up in here as well the the kind of anti-asian racism that was exasperated and then chinatown being a kind of symbol of chinese or, or, or a chinese place in the community be becomes targeted which was so ironic in a way because the historic chinatowns you know in my city our chinatown's like 150 years old it's literally the second oldest um neighborhood in all of montreal after the old port when the french you know took the land settled <laughs> montreal and they first tore down the first walls of the fort chinatown mm -hmm. was the first neighborhood you know the 150 200 year old neighborhood and covid this kind of new pandemic from coming from china all of a sudden you know makes chinatown uh, like people think chinatown's the source of it when it's been in the city for like over 200 years so yeah with the the neighborhoods were stigmatized and i mean i'm mixed race like my mother is white my dad is chinese mm -hmm. for the first time um I, I was fearful for for my 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 father his safety you, you know yeah. like i i remember having this conversation with him where it's like do not go out grocery shopping with a mask on with the face that you have yeah, I, right. I told him to make my mother go out you know they live in a kind of smaller area mm -hmm. in Quebec, and and it was the first time in several generations for us that we kind of felt you know that palpable racism back to you know the times where my grandparents were living in chinatown and if you crossed the gate you would get beaten in the street Sheesh. So, wow so yeah no it, it it was a very intense time and i think remains so like the to jan's point about the restaurants closing um early and and so many people in the chinatown when i was there last week for the premiere just telling me that they won't take the subway after 9 p.m and these are not people that have you know, they're not new immigrants that don't have the language skills or whatever. These are like, you know, New Yorkers through and through um, who can get around the city, speak the language, navigate their way, and they're still afraid. So so it, it what what happened in New York and, and across has really kind of marked our community. Mm -hmm. and, and Jan, arguing back, let's say the Flushing, I'm not sure about uh, Sunset Park, but the flushing, I know that there was some serious backlash when a number of the merchants there were putting in their their signage, you know, it, that it wasn't English and there was a pushback. I remember some a white council member said, hey, that all uh, signage needs to be in English and whatnot. Uh, is, do you see some of that stuff still going on? Well, yeah, I, I remember that incident clearly. Um, you know, there was it, it started to go around the Chinatown communities because um, the fines were foisted upon these businesses, and they were wow. in the many, many, many thousands of dollars. And suddenly, we found ourselves, you know, back to 1910. You know, this is this is outrageous. Um, so I, I, I think it was short lived. Mm -hmm. There's there's a there's support that average people can do to help Chinatowns. And that is to really shop in Chinatowns, mm -hmm. support them 
because <clears throat> at least in, in New York City, Chinatown, over 90% of our businesses are actually mom and pop businesses. Right. And that's what really gives um, our neighborhood, as Karen said earlier, one of the last neighborhoods, real neighborhoods uh, that you can go to, you know, where not every corner is a bank and a CVS. We actually oh, have local God. pharmacies. We have local eyeglass stores. We have local um, uh, everything that involving food, of course, as we're famous for. But New Yorkers can do their part to support local Chinatowns. And one of the things that came out of the pandemic, at least here in New York's Chinatown, is some of the young folks who have taken to social media and really um, drawn attention to our community. We have block parties that have happened throughout the summer. Mm. We have night markets that happen throughout the summer. Yes. Um, yes. You know, there's groups like Think Chinatown and Welcome to Chinatown and the WOW Project that have done amazing, amazing work. And it's the young um, AAPI community that has helped the older generation. So this is an intergenerational um, um, union that has worked with technology, with Instagram, with Twitter, with Facebook to really draw attention back to Chinatown to say, uh, we need you now. We need you mm. to spend your dollars here. And <clears throat> one of the things I talk about is, you know, myself and nine other people got arrested fighting for what we believe in. And that's a very extreme form of activism for a lot of folks. And when you watch this film, you'll see a kinship between activism, uh, activists, yes. and people may go to this film and say, that could never be me. I could never do what those people are doing. But the mm -hmm. real fact of the matter is that you can do something with the dollars that are in your pocket. And that is a form of activism. Yes. Making the choice to go to a store, walk in, meet the owner, and spend your money with them is a is a direct form of activism that everybody can do. And and it's infectious. It starts that way. You bring your up, you bring up your children that way, and you understand that your friends um, can go to a place to buy a cup of coffee or tea instead of Starbucks to go to one of these local places in Harlem or Chinatown, and enjoy that interaction and understand that that's your form of activism, that you can make a difference in that small step. But if there's millions of us doing that, we can really make a difference to preserve small mom and pop businesses. I think that's the important message. And that's why food plays such an integral part of this film is that the margins on food are so small. Yeah. It's a volume game, right? We need to fill these seats. We need to fill these stores. And, and I think that Every New Yorker and every Canadian has an opportunity to do that. That's your form of activism. Absolutely, and Jan, and when we uh, when we had you last on the show, we were talking about anti-Asian violence. One of the things you were talking about in terms of, let's say, the traffic, because we were still in lockdown mode, was was non-existent, and especially, let's say, in Chinatown, has it returned? Has it returned uh, in in a robust ro robust fashion? Tell me. Well, I would say it has. I would say that all of the work that everyone has been doing cumulatively uh, with you guys bringing attention to this part of the city with, uh, the, as I said, the young people who are involved in social media. Also, there are some major foundations that have given grants to some of the mm -hmm. business here, like the James Beard Foundation. Nice. Um, and so there's there's many many ways that people have become reacquainted with chinatown and of, of course tourists are always interested to see chinatown because our chinatown is actually quite authentic it doesn't mm -hmm. have people live here people right. people go to school here people function go to the doctors and have funerals here and so it is very much a, um, a unique neighborhood that it is very much cradled to the grave and people mm -hmm. want to see what that looks like that's different than the rest of new york um it really has bounced back but keep in mind every business that you see in chinatown still owes money to their landlord mm. to their vendors wow. to their to the folks that bring them you know the, the wonton wrappers and the pork and you know they have vendor debt that they still probably are overcoming so to keep up the business is is really just getting them back to zero Mm -hmm. At some point, these businesses will reach a point where they're getting back to thriving and bringing back their employees. A lot of these businesses are working with short staff. So as busy as they are, be patient, be sympathetic. They don't have the staff that they used to when you used to come to Chinatown years ago. So it may yeah, take I a little Yeah, I heard some of those numbers. Those numbers yeah. were incredible in terms of the reduction of staff. Like, how are you still even open? But yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, this is the case with restaurants across the city, right? We all mm -hmm. have to be a little bit patient. The wait staff, the kitchen staff, everyone is working as hard as they possibly can to serve you. And so I think that we have to take that into consideration. And, you know, certainly I tip more than I used to before the <laughs> pandemic, because I know that my dollars, even if it's just the one or two dollars more on a tip, really mm -hmm. goes a long way if we really all do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... I, I just th I think that we can all find these ways to be our own activists. Absolutely. And and Karen, you ex experiencing or seeing the same thing in terms of uh, disappear during COVID now that uh, the restrictions have been lifted to some extent, a uh, return to normalcy. Yeah, no, for, I, for sure. I mean, our Chinatowns up in Quebec, we, we had very severe restrictions. There was, there was a curfew happening where I was for almost a year. Right. Dining rooms were shut down for almost a year, so it was really hard for, especially banquet style eating, which which happens a lot in Chinatown. Mm -hmm. in group, <clears throat> so those businesses were really suffering. But since then, and also the kind of groundswell that emerged in support of Chinatown here as well, um, it has come come back. Not mm -hmm. necessarily to the levels like we there there are still challenges in our Chinatowns here, but you see the love that the community has for these spaces you know on one level it's a restaurant but on another level it's generations of family memories and and gathering as spots like these restaurants are are places where we gather and we can you know as a community together um so it, it's coming back but one thing i do notice like especially you know people are concerned for for safety and and yes. other things that the thing that makes people feel the safe is a, a healthy street life, a vibrant street life, you know, more than even cops walking around the street. Mm -hmm. It's, it's at night, you know, like the Jan mentioned this night market, you know, when, yeah. when there are people on the street, um, a, a life to the, to the sidewalks at night, a mix of people, the seniors feel safe to go out because there's so many people around. It's like the eyes on the street, the, the Jane Jacobs kind of um, adage about uh, a, a yes. healthy and safe neighborhood. So the thing that actually would protect the residents of Chinatown the most or people that are fearful of their safety is a revitalization of, of the businesses and the, the life and the, the street life in the Chinatown. It, it makes everyone safer. Mm. Karen, I, I wanted to ask you a question um, just to tell us a little bit about how you you started to get into filmmaking because what you're doing with with this film and with the the work you're doing in terms of bringing these issues to light is just such an such important work um so we wanted to just hear a little bit about how you got started on this path <laughs> no it's really interesting i think with this uh, film i'm kind of really full circle like i i initially started in school i, I was interested in being a journalist Mm -hmm. Um, and I was kind of, I applied for journalism school and film school, but I, I was always frustrated with how in journalism you had to just kind of like report the facts and, and you couldn't say anything necessarily. And I felt that the stories I had to tell, I wanted to be able to comment and I had something to say. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I went to film school, but I was also at the time thinking that I, you know, I was pursuing a career in fiction filmmaking. I was making fiction films, mm -hmm. but but the, um, the National Film Board in Canada, they actually had a program at the time, which was called Real Diversity. And it was a program for emerging filmmakers of color. So I called them to ask if I was eligible, you know, being half. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. around the same time that I discovered the history of the head tax and the Exclusion Act. And the, these wow. were pieces of history that were completely absent from my history books, my Canadian history books. And it's a really deep dark kind of part of our history that affected half of my family. So wow. when I made this first film, like the very first frame of the very first piece of film I ever shot was literally in my own Chinatown in Montreal's Chinatown. I was filming with a head taxpayer, um, James wing while he was still alive. Mm. And that film, you know, that talked about the head tax and exclusion act. It, it fell at a time where the community was still fighting for redress up in Canada mm -hmm. and the community who had given me their stories. Cause it was such a shameful thing to talk about. No one was talking about the effects, the intergenerational effects of this racism, but the community that had given me these stories turned around, they took the film that that was created and they just ran with it. You know, the film became a tool 
um, in the fight for redress, we presented the film to the uh, the government as, as um, evidence of the kind of intergenerational impact of, of racism. And it became like a, a, a galvanizing point for the community. And, and that's why we toured the film in Chinatown to Chinatown. So since then, I mean, it was literally Chinatown and literally the Chinese Canadian community that gave me my voice as a filmmaker. You know, I, I no. cut my teeth filming in Chinatown. So when I saw the kind of state of these neighborhoods in, in the present, I felt a, a, you know, a responsibility, you know, having had a career where I've done uh, several films now to really come back and dig deep and, 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 you know, spend time in, in my community um, to kind of, you know, hopefully use the, have the film be a tool once again for, you know, bringing about these discussions, these very, you know, uh, desperately needed discussions about, you know, questioning like the direction, the urban development of our city, um, looking at the history of Chinatown that's essentially been erased from the narrative of the of most cities. You know, it's always seen as a kind of tourist attraction or foreign place um, mm -hmm. versus being a living community and a community that has really contributed to the building of, of the city that it happens to be in. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's a long winded story to say that from like I, I found the power of community storytelling and it was my community that gave me that gift. And, and, and now, you know, we're, we're premiering the film. So I just feel so honored to be able to, you know, everyone has kind of given me their stories to be able to make the film. And now the film goes back to the community, right? So they can take that story because it is their story and they can run with it and use it, um, you know, to, to voice their message and their concerns. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, and, and you know what, this is not a commercial, but Karen, serious thumbs up, serious thumbs up. I, I really, really powerful, powerful piece. And uh, you know what, uh, Jan, you may not necessarily get the Oscar this time, okay? But just, just so you know, damn good. So uh, you know, like everything, Curtis. You know, I'm just a symbol. There's there's teams and teams of people that work uh, with Neighbors United Below Canal, the group that I co-founded with Chris Marte. Um, teams and teams of supporters, uh, senior advisors, people who are architects and 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 people from criminal justice reform, and and we we really dove deep into this, and I, I'm glad that Karen was able to capture that. But I, I may be the front face of something, but we always recognize that we're, we're standing on the shoulders of the elders of our community, but also. Um, learning from the black community, learning from the Native American community, learning from the Japanese community that was displaced off of their land during World War II. This is just another part of history that we cannot ignore, but we have to learn from it. Absolutely. And that's one of the things, as you say, Jan, that bottom line, we certainly saw what happened to George Floyd. But remember, in terms of the backlash, the marching wasn't just black people. It were people who saw mm -hmm. this unjust treatment. So so in terms of the uh, Chinese struggle, uh, do uh, you have identified some allies, some folks who are also marching and feel the same sentiments with you, right? Well, I, I just love the how this the the continuity of this conversation that um, that your last appearance on the show that Karen saw, which led to her connected to you, which led to the film, which led to you back here. So the circle of life. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. So, so, so um, we've we, we got we to make sure that they, how, how we can get in touch with them and also where we can uh, view the film. Tell us. Well, the film uh, is online through mm -hmm. Doc NYC. Uh, everywhere in the United States, you can stream it online until November 27th. And then, Jan, for, for NUBC, you should let folks know. Sure, sure. Uh, follow NUBC, NYC, mm -hmm. on both Instagram and Facebook and on um, uh, on our website, NUBC, NYC, for updates. We are going to be doing community meetings very shortly. Uh, we are currently networking with elected officials. Um, that has mm -hmm. never stopped. But we're looking at a different administration. So. Um, we're looking forward to having conversations that involve uh, preserving Chinatown and working toward a win-win-win situation for both our government, for the detainees who are going to be in there, 
and for uh, saving Chinatown. That's really a priority for all of, for us. Excellent, excellent. Now, Watchman, you have a, you want to take us home? Well, we've been on Soul Lounge Primetime on WHCR 90.3 FM, also live streaming on YouTube and Facebook. Thank you, Karen Cho. Thank you, Jan Lee. Um, you guys have an open invitation to come back. Um, yes. We definitely want to keep this conversation going. Um, there's so many parallels we have between our, our communities, and when we can work together and share information, um, it, it works out for the benefit of all of us. Yes. Agreed. Yes, thank you. So thank you, thank so you much. for joining us. Yes. Incredible, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right.